All right, let's pray and we'll get into uh, what we believe about the true God. Lord God, we come before you and I thank you. We give you praise for those that you have saved. We thank you for uh, Crystal and her testimony and changed life uh, because of your grace in her life. And I thank you for each and every believer that's in this room. I thank you for those that are uh, among us that you are still working on, Lord God. And I pray that if anyone here does not know you as Savior, uh, that you would be drawing them to yourself and that you would work faith in their hearts and that you would help and cause them to believe and so that they would be saved and that they would know that and have a transformed life. Thank you that you are the purpose why we live and that through knowing you, we have the supreme treasure of our hearts because we are made for you, Lord God. So we thank you for that, the fact that you've revealed yourself to us, uh, especially in the pages of Scripture and through the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to see you and to treasure you and to be true to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. So what we believe about the true God. We have the uh, PowerPoint will switch over here in a moment, but if you have a copy of the What We Believe booklet that can guide you through this a little bit with some of the notes and some of the scripture references. I'll be reading some of them. I won't be reading all of them. But yeah, wow, think of this topic that we get to deal with today. Just just a small topic of the true God. So probably the biggest, well, definitely the biggest, most expansive topic you could ever have. So I guess think about it like this. How many of you have ever used Cliff Notes? Okay. Uh, um, You know, in school, you had to read an assignment, and you could get the Cliff Notes, and it was kind of the abridged cheater version. So I'm sure nobody in here did. But if theoretically you did, uh, you have this big work, and it's condensed down. Think about doing that to the the doctrine of God, which is basically everything that is revealed to us about him in Scripture, plus general revelation. And even that is a part of what could be said about God, what he knows about himself. So condense that, but then take that and make a footnotes, a a cliff notes version of that, and now make a cliff note version of the cliff notes, and another cliff note version of the cliff notes, and keep doing that several dozen times, and you'll get to this message. Okay, so by... We're talking about an infinite subject. I mean, God is infinite. And so we have at most here 30 minutes because I'm going to finish on time. Okay, we have a meeting and wherever we are, we're just finishing or maybe early. So in a way, it frees me knowing that there's no way I can do justice to this topic. And even if we were here for the next 70 years, we can't do justice to this topic So this is going to be the highlights, and specifically, our task is to talk about this section in our statement of faith to help you understand what we believe, where this is rooted in Scripture, who this might differentiate us from, and some of the ways that this matters for our lives. So let's read this, and the first, do we got the PowerPoint going to be? So when you get a chance to get that uh, switched over, if, it, if I gave you the correct one. But. 
Okay, Article 2, The True God. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. That in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, equal in every divine perfection, and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. All right, let's dig into that. And in the bulletin, if you have it as well, I have an outline to try and condense this. And the first point that we're going to look at is that, one, we believe in one true God, no more, no less. That's what we believe in, one true God. And so this means a few things. Hey, there we go. It's just not showing up in the back. I can't see it, but we'll be okay. I'll just have to turn around a lot. First thing, this means, well, let's read a few of the passages that talk about this. Um, So if you have this, there's a few verses. I'm just going to read a few of them. We don't need to read all of them. Exodus 22 through 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk blamelessly before me and be blameless. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's a collection of verses that were put together when uh, the people that originally did the doctrinal statement. And a few of these, it hits the whole teaching of Scripture. Scripture is very clear that there there is one true God. I mean, there may be many gods out there that people claim that are gods. People do this all the time. People say, well, my God wouldn't do this. My God wouldn't do that. As if we can just kind of conjure and create any possible God that we imagine, and that God becomes a real God. But what really matters is, what about the true God? Is there an actual God that actually exists, not just in our imagination, but in real life and in the real world? So one of the things that we as Christians And this would be something all Christians, or all people that even claim to be Christians of any denomination, would agree upon. And one is that we are monotheists. So a theist, that is the part that means God. Theos is the Greek word for God, so that's where that part comes from. Mono means one. So we are monotheists. Now, that would also be the same for for Jews, And that would also be the same for Muslims as well, that we would be the three religions that are monotheistic. We're going to see we're not only monotheistic, because we also believe in that God is a trinity. But for now, we're monotheists. So this sets us apart from from atheists. An atheist is not a monotheist. An atheist believes in no gods. So the prefix a there means no. So an atheist doesn't believe in God at all. So that would be one 
uh, set of beliefs that would be different from us. We believe there actually is a God. And we can think sometimes, what would it be like to really believe that there is no God and to really grasp that? And what would, how would that change things? And I think if you really think about what that would mean, it really takes all meaning and purpose, I believe, out of the world. Because if there is, if no God, if we are just the result of a random accident, that there's no reason why we're here, there's no real direction where we're going, that we live our lives and one day we die, that eventually even the things that we left behind, the sun blows up, the universe collapses, and it's all for, for nothing. And you can try to create your meaning and your purpose, but in reality, there's nothing that's ultimate, there's nothing that continues. There's no real explanation for anything, there's no real reason why you're here. Any sense of destiny or hope that you have is just an illusion. Things as far as love, uh, these deepest things are just chemicals in your brain. There's no ultimate justice. All of these things are just evaporated if there is no God. It's a pretty bleak thing. I think what the hope that is that there is a God. But we believe, there, we believe there's one true God, no more and no less. That also means that we are not polytheists. Poly means many. So we do not believe that there are many gods. So this would separate us from, well, from many religions, a lot of the old pagan religions, they believed in lots of gods. You had, you had Zeus and Aphrodite and uh, all the Greek gods or the Roman gods. In the Mormon system, they believe that you can become a god. That you can, if you are a good Mormon, you can w- work your way up to godhood as a good Mormon man. If you're a Mormon woman, you can hopefully marry one of these guys and be part of their harem forever. Uh, that's a whole nother topic, but basically it would be a polytheistic religion, many gods. Now, I think it's worth noting this too, that if you really think about it, how can you really have more than one god? You could have more than one, theoretically, lowercase gods if all you meant by god was a really, really powerful being. And that's how it was in, let's say, Greek mythology. They would battle it out. They would have conflicts because they each had their little sphere of, uh, they're in control over this. Um, Poseidon might be in control of the oceans. And you know, Mars is in charge of you know, war, Ares. And they each had their, their area. But they, none of them were all-powerful. But you ever think you can't have more than one all-powerful being? Because what would happen if they disagreed? I mean, if they got in a fight, there would be a battle, and one gets their way and the other doesn't. And whoever doesn't get their way, obviously that's not the all-powerful being. So if you're going to talk about a god, like full throttle, uppercase G, god, I think it totally makes sense that there can only be one actual god that is eternal, the source of everything, and really all-powerful. And last, this also means that we're not pantheists. Pan means all. So in pantheism, I guess in a sense they would believe in one God, but the difference is they would believe that everything is God. So God is God, and the, the trees are God, the air is God, we are God, that everything, we are all a part of God. But 
in our doctrinal statement, and because this is what Scripture teaches, not everything is God. There's the Creator, and there's creation. And there's a distinction between the two. So it's not that we are all God. And that could really go to your head, too. I think we've probably all known people that maybe thought they were God. Uh, but, you know, if you start thinking this, you can start having these beliefs that, well, if God is all and I'm part of God, then whatever I decide must be right. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm part of God. So instead, our doctrinal statement mentions that we believe in God, but it also mentions <coughs> that he is the, uh, the, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. So he made everything else, but that stuff that he made is not God. So, it's our first section. We've got to keep clipping along here, because the last part we're going to talk about the Trinity. And uh, while wow, that would be enough for a lot of messages. So I'm going to do my best there, and I hope you enjoy that part when we talk about the Trinity. So second section here, second point, we believe in a God who is perfect in his attributes. So attributes are the things that are true about God. They're part of his perfections. They're the different, it's kind of like a diamond with many facets. It's one diamond, but you can look at it and you can see different things that are true about it. And like we said this this morning, God's attributes are not these add-ons that are stuck to him as if you can take them on and off. They're just descriptions of what he is like. So if you talk about God being holy and good and loving and just, he is all of these things all the way through. It's not like there's just a part of him that's holy and another part of him that is good and another part that's loving and another part that is uh, wrathful against sin. He is all of that all the way through. And so the attributes, we can kind of distinguish, but you can't separate those away or take away any. And we see statements in here in our doctrinal statement where it lists some of these things. And there's so many more that you could, and I hope you do, spend time looking at. Get a good book on the attributes of God. Spend time about thinking about his greatness, his awesomeness. And that's where, as Pastor Nick mentioned, we have recommended reading that's in the back of the book on page 41. And I know uh, Mike Raber has already gotten a good stack of these that are going into the library, and I hope you'll get some of these. So there's a section here on um, works on the true God, the joy of fearing God by Jerry Bridges, trusting God, knowing God, the attributes of God, the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Good stuff. Whether you get it from the library or you dig into some of this, I hope you will. You, you will be blessed as you think about the greatness of God. <clears throat> but in the doctrinal statement, it lists a few things. Let me read a little bit of uh, scripture as well. Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And this is comparing it to the, to the false gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer is, there's, there's none like you. God is unique. He's in a class of his own. There's no one that's really like him. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The fact that God has the power to, he created everything. The only thing that he didn't create was himself. And he didn't need to be created. 
There had to be something that's the source and foundation of why everything else exists. And that's him. And that puts God in a completely different category from any other being. You can look around this room and everything in this room has a maker, including the, the podiums, including you and I. And we could scour the earth and everything is going to have some kind of cause that comes before it. God is the only thing that's different than that. That he has nothing that made him because he didn't need to be made. He always existed. Category all on his own. 1 Timothy 1.17, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So just listening to a few of the things that are in the doctrinal statement, it talks about him being infinite. Yes, this means that he is not limited. He is not finite. He cannot be contained. He cannot be bound. That's why no matter how long this message was, there's no way we could do justice to who God is. He is, he is limitless in his perfections. It also states in the doctrinal statement that he is, it says, an intelligent spirit. Now, why would it say that? I think it could be a reference to the fact that he is intelligent in the sense that he is omniscient, that he knows everything. But I think it's also a reference to the fact that he is not impersonal. That he is, he has um, his personality to him in the sense, okay, he's not the force, okay? The force doesn't have a mind, okay? You can't have a a real relationship with, with the force or with electricity or with wind or something. Or in a lot of Eastern religions where, the, you know, the universe or everything is one. But we believe in a God that's actually a, a personal God. In fact, a tri-personal God. And so this is a God that has mind, that has will, that you can actually have a real relationship with. And think of how that makes a difference. I think it also explains why we live in a world where we have people with personality and consciousness because we come from a God that is a personal God. It says that he is a spirit. So God is not physical. He does not, he's not made of atoms and molecules. Jesus, yes, Jesus came down and he became a human being. Okay, so he took on a body, but before then, he did not have a physical body. God is God is spirit. And it mentions that um, in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is not a uh, physical being. That would be something else that would distinguish us from, again, from the Mormons. They actually believe that God, the Father, has an actual physical human body, and that he must have that and that he had a God before him that was his creator. It's just a very different thing than what we believe that the Bible teaches. It says he's the maker, the supreme ruler. He's not a part of creation. He's lord over it. He's sovereign. He's in control of things. He's holy. And we can only touch on this, that he's set apart from sin. He's set apart from any imperfection. He's, he's high and transcendent. That his holiness, is, his glory with that is, is like the sun. And therefore, 
that's part of the problem, too, for us, because we are not holy. And that's why Jesus Christ had to come to this earth, sent by God the Father, because God is not going to change being a holy God. He can't and he won't give that up. And so in order for there to be a relationship with us, for us to have a relationship with God, he had to do something to solve that. There's no amount of steel wool that we could take to our souls and scrub it to get the sin away. The only thing that can wash away our sin was the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our salvation. That he lived his perfect life in our place, died on the cross, and so we can have salvation as a gift. So he can save us without compromising his holiness because we're declared righteous through him. And then there's, it's hard to break this up into distinct statements, but it talks about, in our doctrinal statement, him being worthy of all possible honor and confidence and love. And I think this has to mean many of these other attributes that are unmentioned. And there's so many more that aren't in the statement. That God is good, and therefore he's worthy of possible honor for his goodness. He's trustworthy. We can place our confidence in him. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you, knowing that he died on the cross for you, he offers you this as a gift, you can have full confidence. He's not going to back away from that. He's not going to decide to to change the deal. You can can trust him and you can keep trusting him. And his love, because God is love. He is loving. He took the initiative and so much more. That he's he's the highest delight that we could possibly have. He's the the being that is the highest object for us, our hearts to treasure that could possibly exist. And if we don't see that, it's because our hearts are wrong or because we're and because we're not looking at him. And that's why we get together. We want to trust God to to save us, to change our hearts so we can see him. And together we we worship him, we look at his words so that more and more he can come into focus and we can realize how awesome he really is. Last point is we also believe, and this one sets us apart from every other uh, non-Christian religion, is that we also believe that God is a trinity. And this means that we believe that God is one being in three persons. And it's very specific how we say that. God is one being we could say he's, he's one God, uh, he has one nature, but he's in three persons. Now, the word Trinity, <coughs> this whole doctrine of the Trinity, that can, it can be a tough one. And you know what, if the doctrine of Trinity, if you feel like maybe you've been going to church your whole life and you don't have this fully figured out, that probably means you're on the right track. Okay? Because there's nothing I can do to say, Okay, you want to understand the Trinity. Well, the Trinity is exactly like this other thing. Because God is unique. He's one of a kind. There's no other thing that's exactly like the Trinity. There's some things that are kind of like it, but not exactly. And therefore, it's as hard for us to wrap our minds around what the Trinity is like as what it would be for, let's say, a person that was born blind to be have it described to them what a red balloon looks like. 
how would you tell them what a red balloon looks like instead of a, a blue balloon if they've been blind their entire life? So all we can do is we can look at what Scripture presents and we can see that it teaches that God is one being in three persons. Now, the word Trinity is actually not found anywhere in Scripture. And I don't know if that, if that worry, would worry you at all. It shouldn't, because there's other things that the actual word isn't found there. But it's not the big deal that the word isn't found in Scripture. The big deal is that the doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching of the Trinity, is actually found in Scripture. And I'll just read one place where you can see this. And really, we want to look at a lot of Scripture put together, but one great Scripture is... At the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there you have these three that are mentioned, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those are the three members of the Trinity. And it's also interesting that he says, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't say in the names, plural. There's one name. God is one glory. He's one being. But he exists in these three persons. So we believe that God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. And God the Spirit is fully God as well. So, in a sense, we believe that God is both three and God is one. Now again, that may seem like it's a contradiction. How can God be three and one at the same time? But the thing is, we're not saying that God is three and one in the same way. That would be a contradiction. But we're saying that he is one being, but he's three persons. Now another way to look at this is to realize that in Scripture, there are three foundational truths. That if you put these together, these three foundations... It adds up to basically what is the doctrine of the Trinity. And I take these from a book by James White called The Forgotten Trinity. It's a book that we'll have in the church library. And if you want to dig into this on the Trinity, it is a book that I would recommend. So these three teachings, each of these, these are found taught in Scripture. And if all of these are taught in Scripture and if they're all true, you put these together and there you have it. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So the first one is that there is only one God. We've already talked about this. This is monotheism. One of the key verses in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if there was one thing that the, the, uh, the ancient Jews were sure of, and even in the New Testament, they knew that there was one God. There were not many gods, there was only one. The second foundational truth, putting this together, is that there are three distinct divine persons. Let me unpack that a little bit. This means that Scripture teaches, and if we had more time, we could look where it teaches each of these. If you look at the scriptural references in the workbook, you'll see some of these. Uh, But it teaches that God the Father is God. It teaches that God the Son, Jesus Christ, that he is also fully God. As we keep going through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be seeing that over and over again. And it also teaches that the Holy Spirit is 
fully God. And we see that in, in Scripture as well. Let me give you one place where it talks about that. Acts 5, 3-4, through 4, listed in the workbook. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now what's interesting there is to see that in that passage, that Peter is, at one point he says, lying to the Holy Spirit, and then he interchangeably says, lying to God. And so this is showing that the Holy Spirit is God. There's other reasons to believe this as well too, but that's part of where the Bible teaches each of those subpoints. But also, that each of these three persons, they're distinct. They're not separated from each other, as if they can detach. They're always unified, but they're distinct. And what it means by this is that God the Father is not the Son. Okay? So God the Son died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And if you go on, it's just we don't have room on the screen. God the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So each of these three are God, but they're also distinct from one another. They're distinct persons. That's why when Jesus, when he's praying to the Father, he's not, he's not praying to himself. Okay? When you have, when Jesus is baptized, and he is there, and then there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him as a, as a dove. These are three distinct persons. It's not... Uh, you know, Jesus running real fast so he can look like he's in three places at the same time, okay? So it, he is three distinct persons. He can have conversation, relationship. He can, the persons of the Trinity can love each other. In fact, they've been existing in a loving relationship from eternity. That's why when God created us, he didn't do it because he was lonely. That uh, each member of the Trinity uh, had as much great companionship as uh, he wanted forever with the other persons of the Trinity. But because God is loving, he wanted to let that delight overflow. And so we could know him and experience that as well. So that's the second foundation. And the third foundation is that the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they have each always been God. So it's not the case that God the Father was God and then sometime he decided, I'm going to make another one and he makes Jesus. And then they decide, hey, let's make another and they make the Holy Spirit. No, they've always eternally existed. And they've always been absolutely equal in power and glory, dignity, all of this. So these three foundations, you put them together and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. And yeah, it's hard for us to imagine exactly what it's like, but we believe that this is what Scripture teaches. If you deny the first foundation, you're a polytheist. If you deny the second foundation, well, if you deny that they're distinct, you would be a modalist. That would be a view that kind of the, that God is like a transformer, like a transformer triple changer, okay? And now he's a robot, now he's a truck, now, okay? So there's some that believe that God, there was just one God, and it was Jesus, and he, he would transform into the Father. And then he would transform into the Holy Spirit. And then 
but he was never all of these at the same time. No, we believe that God is three persons and that they're distinct from each other. And you, if you deny the third foundation, you're a, a subordinationist. The Jehovah Witness would, would be an example of that. They believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not fully and eternally God in the same way that God the Father is. So, we're out of time, but there's different illustrations that probably you've heard. Some of these, you have to evaluate, are not as good as others. Okay? So I'm gonna, and this might rock your world. This, you might, I'm going to be taking away some cherished illustrations from you. But one, I mean, you've heard it described that God is like ice and water and like steam. I would say this is not a great illustration to use because that implies modalism. I knew if I looked at Pastor Nick right now, I'd laugh, because inside joke. Okay. <laughs> but the thing is, ice, you know, it can't be ice and water and steam all at the same time. It's, it's shape-shifting, and that's not what it's like. The egg is an illustration sometimes we use. There's three parts to an egg. problem is that the, they're not the same thing. The yolk is not like the white, and the white is not like the shell. One that could be better might be light, you know, white light is composed of three different colors of light. And you can send it through a prism and you can distinguish between them. Now, again, that's not a perfect illustration, but it might be somewhat helpful. I think one that's actually kind of helpful to me is a distinction between a line and a triangle. And I'll just say this quick. Imagine you live in a world and you live in, like, line world. And you're a line... Every person that you know is a line. Okay, so you go to school with the people that are lines, you meet them, and you would assume that to be a, a, a shape and a line, that's the same thing. And then one day you're watching a science fiction show, and they talk about this crazy being that's called a triangle. And they say, this triangle, this is one shape, but it's three lines. You say, what? No, that can't be possible because... Everyone I know is one shape and one line. It's the same thing. They say, no, a triangle, it's one shape but three lines. I think, in a way, that's kind of what it's like. That for us, we're one being and one person, each of us. We don't know, you don't know anyone else that's a triple person. But God is still one being, just like he's one, a triangle is one shape, but he's three persons in the way that a triangle is three lines. Again, not a perfect illustration, but I found it to be helpful. And you know what? The bottom line, applications, God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our uh, giving him the glory and our honor. And I'm so thankful that we have a God that is bigger than what I can imagine, that is bigger than what I can figure out. Because if I could figure out God, I would think that I have control over him. But the fact that I can't even figure out God shows that he is beyond. And that if we spend our whole lives seeking after him, we are going to have every day more and more to worship. This is a big God. And isn't it amazing that he came into this world to have a relationship with you and to die on the cross so that for eternity you can find your happiness in him. That's awesome. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise. We praise Father, we praise Son, we praise Holy Ghost.
And we ask that you would help us to have hearts that cherish and adore you, Lord God. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for your holiness. And thank you that you do not change. And that your holiness remains the same. Your goodness remains the same. And that through Jesus and his life and death on the cross, you found a way without changing to make it so that we can be declared righteous in your sight. Not by anything we've done, but by a gift from you that all we can do is receive. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. But we thank you for that. And I pray that you would work faith in the hearts of people here, that we would believe and trust you, Lord God, and have our hearts and our lives just help us to be enamored by you and your glory. We praise you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.